Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... The professional standards that once upon a time defined a banker had been lost in the system. Banks went away from being customer relationship driven to becoming product centric driven. Not every entrepreneur wants to start a new bank. After all, that's a huge undertaking and it's risky. You must be well-resourced to look after other people's money. It's a highly regulated industry already dominated by the big four banks who could possibly crush a new challenger. But according to my guest, Joseph Healy, the essential ingredients are the same whether you're aiming to build a new bank or a tiny startup in your garage. Joseph Healy and a mate, David Hornery, founded Judo Bank in 2019. Being born in the eye of the COVID storm, they say, made the bank stronger. And the pair claim to have delivered what they promised for small to medium-sized businesses. Well, now a higher interest rate environment produces new challenges for the Minnow Bank. Despite its shares being marked down, Judo's lending book is now around $9 billion as of the end of June 30, 2023, and the bank achieved a strong 2023 profit. Joseph Healy reckons they are building the culture, mindset, and business model to ensure Judo grows into a sustainable success. Joseph Healy, the co-founder and CEO of Judo Bank, you started this bank from scratch, a blank piece of paper, as a bank, what, just some five years ago, really. Welcome to Build It, They'll Come. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, now, you were a veteran of several decades working as a senior executive inside some of the biggest banks, ANZ and NAB. What on earth made you think that you could leave a big four bank and just start your own? First of all, I'm, I have always been very passionate about the role that banks play in the economy, particularly as it relates to small to mid-sized businesses. I felt for quite a long time that the banks had lost sight of what, who they were there to serve. Uh, there's a concept, popular concept of business called social license. Not everybody agrees with the concept of social license, but when it comes to banks, banks play a very privileged, privileged role in our society, in our economy. Uh, but they lost sight of all of that. And I felt that the banks had, had become quite self-serving, uh, driven by shareholder value objectives, losing sight of the social license that the government through APRA gives the banks and, the, and all of the privileges that go with being a bank. One of the big privileges is that when you raise deposits from people like you and I, the taxpayer guarantees those deposits up to $250,000 per deposit. No other industry in the economy has that privileged, and there are other privileges. So I'd felt quite strongly as a career banker that banks had lost sight of what they were there to do, uh, and increasingly frustrated and felt there was a need uh, uh, and an opportunity to build a new bank 
they went back to the way that banking used to be done and the way that banking should be done. But I mean, you know, many others have trodden the path of leaving a big bank, mostly or probably with a bundle of money, um, and then they either go and retire or and play golf or they go and work for another big established company. Again, what made you think, oh, I could just start my own bank and take people's hard-earned money as deposits and look after it? Well, myself and 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 a, and a few others, because I, I I wouldn't want to suggest that I did this. Well, on particularly my own. your co-founder, David, yeah. David, David Cornery. Yeah, look, we we had talked about this uh, for quite some time, and I can I can say from a personal point of view, and I think I speak for David and others too, that we felt that getting a staying in the big banking system was definitely a safe career option, well paid and would have seen out the rest of our uh, you know, professional career. But then we often talked about, think of life 10 years from now on that Friday evening with your gin and tonic in hand, reflecting back on your career. A successful career by, by any normal measures, but a career unfulfilled. A career that there was something else that we wanted to do and that we would regret it if we didn't give it a go. And so it was that sense of leading a life of fulfilled life, of, of doing, more, doing more than just being a career banker. So what, you didn't want to have regrets about I, that Well, that, that, was, that was the thing that, that, that acted as the, the catalyst, really, was looking back and thinking a life of regrets, that I wish we had done that when we thought about it. So th that was, those were the real motivations. It wasn't financial. We built. I certainly had built some reasonable personal wealth, so I could live quite comfortably if I wanted to. But I it would have been a life of regrets if we hadn't given this a go. But nonetheless, a whole new bank with all the regulatory, the compliance, and the huge level of funding it, it took, that's a big undertaking. It is. Um, but we, wanted, we felt that being a bank rather than, say, a non-bank lender, was important for a whole bunch of reasons. Briefly, why? Well, attracting the, the sort of capital that we were going to need, attracting the bankers that we were going to need to grow the company, attracting the customers, uh, many of whom small to mid-sized businesses want to deal with the bank. So on balance, we felt that whilst there were significant costs, including uh, regulation, that on balance, becoming a bank was the right path to go down. How did the idea actually come about or formulate? And well, was it your idea? Was it David's? I know David and I used to meet on a Friday evening at, at a pub called the Greengate Hotel up in the North Shore. Oh, yes. A lot of Sydney siders will know that. Uh, and we used to, ref we, as we worked together, but busy, of course, during the week, we used to use that Friday night drinks as a debrief on how things were progressing in the business and what big challenges were. And we started talking about this idea that the banks had really lost their way and that there had to be a better uh, way of looking after the small to mid-sized business economy. So we had talked about this. And then we talked about the idea of building this new bank. Of course, no one had ever done this. So there was no playbook that we could copy, uncharted waters in every sense of that meaning. But we felt and we knew just how dissatisfied small to mid-sized businesses were with the big banks. So we knew there was an opportunity there. 
Did you do some proper market research or was this just anecdotally through both your roles in those big banks? I mean, did you know that SMEs would come running to you or did you just suppose they might? Well, what what we knew was that they were not happy with the big banks. Um, We couldn't find a customer satisfaction survey and they are 10 a penny that scored the banks higher than three on a scale of one to 10. So the fact that small businesses were very unhappy with the way that banks were treating them was something that we were very certain of. Now, the acid test is, having said that, can you then convince small to mid-sized businesses to come and do business with a new bank? Um, you know, a bank that was unproven, of course. Uh, but we believe we could do that. We believe that if we could, if we could build this bank in a certain way, with a certain culture, with a certain caliber of staff, make sure it was well-funded, so it was well-capitalized, well-resourced, that we we would be able to attract the customers that would make the bank viable. Just before we get on to all that, how disillusioned had you become with the big banking system, the ethos, the philosophy, the values? Very disillusioned. I mean, and I say that as someone who is a career banker, and someone who was on the executive committee of one of the largest banks in the country and someone who had a, a long career in the industry, I, I'd become quite frustrated uh, on a number of fronts. One is that I felt that the banks, there wasn't a lot of competition in Australia after the global financial crisis. They, Even with all the new banks that uh, Prime Minister Keating, or sorry, Treasurer Keating. Now I can't remember whether he was Prime Minister or Treasurer when he led in all those new banks. No, when he, the, I mean, the big four banks through the acquisition of St. George and the acquisition of Bank West, the industry become heavily consolidated. And there was little to differentiate them other than their brands. They were very similar in their approach to business. The Australian banking system became over uh, enthusiastic about the housing market. I mean, I remember, and these are these are facts that if you go back, if you went back to the year two thousand, for every dollar that the banks were lending to the housing sector, largely into mortgages, they were lending a dollar to the business sector, forty cents of which went to small to mid-sized businesses. If you fast track to today, for every dollar that the banks lend to the housing sector, less than forty cents goes to the business sector, and less. Than 15 cents goes to small to mid-sized businesses. So there had been a huge shift in the way that banks were allocating credit in the economy. Yeah. Um, Do you get the irony or the, pardon me for being a cynic, but here you are, now your narrative is, oh, the big banks um, had lost their way and all that. You were in that system. You were part of that system. You were a very senior executive in that system for a long time. Very much so. And uh, I So don't, you were perpetrating those I, I values much, that you're now railing against. I was very much part of that. There's no question about it. Doesn't mean that I necessarily agreed with it all. Uh, I wasn't the CEO of the banks, but I was in a position of influence. But the tendency and the momentum in the banking sector in Australia was towards lending money on residential mortgages. And you had this perverse situation where if I if I went to the bank to borrow a million dollars for my weekend holiday home, uh, and you went to the bank to borrow a million dollars to hire 10 people and build your small business, 
the incentive arrangements within the banks was to give me a million dollars for my for my for the holiday home, uh, and not to give you the million dollars for small business expansion. Yeah. Well, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? But that is the story of real estate in this country. So you're saying really, I mean, if you look at it from a consumer point of view, that's the way people have got rich in Australia, by seeing the value of their houses go up. But you're saying the banks were sort of pushing that, perpetuating it. Oh, no question. Um, Fueling it. uh, Absolutely fueling it. I mean, with unbridled enthusiasm. uh, You know, today we've got in the banking system mortgage debt of $2.2 trillion. It is the most highly leveraged household sector in the developed world. And we're at, of course, we're at a stage in the economy with interest rates rising and, and regular media commentary on stress in the household sector, and uh, this could all be turned be quite nasty. Uh, if that did happen, then a significant finger pointing towards the banking system would be warranted because the banks were not exercising prudence in some of the lending that they have been doing over the course of the last decade yeah. uh, as they sought to kind of grow their market share and encourage households to borrow far much more than they really should be borrowing. Of course, particularly at low interest rates that we saw in the in the post kind of GFC stroke pandemic environment. Yeah, yeah. I want to come back to interest rates later, if I may. But you had this concept formed in 2016. Now that was well before the Hain Banking Royal Commission came into being. But did the sort of the behaviour that came out at the Royal Commission, I mean, did that inform some of your thinking? Well, it didn't about su- this disillusionment. Uh, it only confirmed it. It didn't surprise me at all, because one of the things that that I and I've been quite public about this, that banking had progressively lost its professional ethos. Certainly, I would say since the beginning of this century, but progressively with real momentum from from around about two thousand six, two thousand seven, the professional standards that once upon a time to find a banker had been lost in the system. Not, not just This is not just an Australian problem. It was a big problem, for example, in the United Kingdom. But the sort of behavior, bank, banks went away from being customer relationship driven to becoming product centric driven. And profit centric. How, how many products could we sell this customer? Not th- what products does a customer need and understand but how many products could we sell to this customer? And of course, the incentive arrange- arrangements, the, the commi- sales commissions, and only reinforced this behavior that the job of the banker was not to understand the customer, but was to sell as many products to that customer that they possibly could. And that, that goes back to my comments earlier about the social license. I mean, a lot of people I included myself. I mean, I grew up not quite trusting the banker in the way that you trust your doctor or your dentist. But when you went to speak to your bank asking for some advice on borrowing to buy a new home or borrowing to buy a new, you implicitly, you were, you had a reasonable expectation that they would exercise professional judgment and sometimes say to you, Joe, this is not a good idea for you. Mm. Or if you are going to borrow, don't borrow more than X. All of that went, left the industry. The industry said, how much can I lend to this customer 
And really, it's it's caveat emptor in the sense that it's the customer's responsibility, not the bank's responsibility. I'll just come back to it one more time. Weren't you part of this profits are all mentality yes, as a senior executive? I was. And why couldn't you do something about I, it if I, you didn't well, like I, it? I did express my views, and I've done so publicly. Anyone who cares to Google some of the speeches that I made going back to 2010, 11 and 12. I, I talked publicly in, in, in forums and was and was reported in the media that I felt uneasy about the amount of lending that was going into the household sector. I felt uneasy about the professional standards in the banking industry. Um, I'd, I'd seen a banking industry in Australia that was copying the banking industry that I saw in the United Kingdom, that, an industry that eventually resulted in the government having to bail out two of the big banks. Didn't happen here, touch wood. Um, but the behavior was, you, the, the banks that once upon a time used to be run by people who understood banking were being run by management consultants and people who came from a very different background. Very smart people, almost without exception. But as to understanding the essence of banking and the risks in banking, that wasn't really a big priority for the way the banks were being run uh, over the, you know, for, for, for the decades that I've mentioned. Let's skip forward to your new concept, your idea to start a whole new bank and get it off the ground. What was the path like for that? I imagine it was quite difficult, quite stressful, quite challenging. Firstly, you had to convince APRA, I'm assuming, the regulator. Then you had to think about how the heck are we going to raise a lot of money well, to capitalise it? Yeah. So back in 2016, um, when we started working on this uh, in, in earnest, we we said, let's let's start with the end in mind. Let's think about the bank we want to have in 2026. So let's not think about that in, in small increments, but let's start with the end in mind. So it was quite a big vision. It was a big vision. And then make sure that you think that we thought through all of the aspects of this. Very much a measure twice, cut once approach. What does that mean? Be, let's be careful in thinking through what it is we need to have in place and test our logic that, and think through the risks involved in what we're trying to build. So measure twice, cut. don't rush in. Uh, think through the infrastructure, the technology, think through the governance, uh, the shareholders that we wanted into the company. We didn't just want anybody's money. We, were, we, we saw at the beginning that we were going to have to raise $1.5 billion of equity. Was that your figure or was that APRA's No, no, that was figure. our figure. That was our, th This was long before we talked to APRA. I mean, right. We went to see APRA in 2016 at a courtesy to say that we're building uh, what we hope will become a bank. Uh, and so we don't want you to reading anything in the gossip columns. But but we didn't really engage with APRA in, uh, in any degree of seriousness till mid 2018, which is that, which is when the Turnbull government announced a policy of encouraging new entrants into the banking industry. Okay, so, so basically anyone could start a bank if they wanted to, if they could meet the requirements of APRA. But the, but the government was quite public. Mm. I, I think actually. 
uh, certainly Malcolm Turnbull was the prime minister, and I think Scott Morrison was the treasurer at that time. But the government said that we are now, in, and, and not disconnected to the Royal Commission findings and some of the issues there, that they were going to encourage new entrants yeah. into it. So we, so we started our journey before then. Yeah. But we were, we, we, we always wanted to create a bank knowing that there was no precedent for this in Australia. And therefore there's a big risk attached to it. But we were confident that we understood banking and that we could assemble a high caliber team, that we could assemble a, a group of strong group of sophisticated investors and that we would go to APRA with a well-developed business case backed by uh, executives who, who had credibility or credentials mm. in the industry. And so- And what a clear, consistent message about who you were servicing and serving. Correct. Absolutely. So we were, you know, we went with, with we spent a lot of time building the business case. Uh, making sure, as I said, uh, that we measure twice, cut once in terms of the risks, because this is a business that is inherently risky. Full of risks. Full of risks. But we wanted to demonstrate that, that because also when you're going to speak to investors, um, they're, they're going to want to be satisfied that you really know what you're doing mm. and that you've thought this through and that you've, you've thought through your, your contingencies. If, if this doesn't work, what will you do? So that's what I mean by measure twice, cut once. Let spend the time up front, spend the best part of nine months working on this and making sure that it's the foundations in which we were going to build this bank were robust foundations. And also that we were building, to use a, a housing analogy, that we were building a 10 bedroom house, even though the requirements back then were for two bedrooms, but build the foundations so that you could build a bank that we that we that we want Juro to become. Who were your initial investors? Who gave you? And did you get the one and a half billion dollars before you started? Uh, well, we got we got the we got the one and a half billion in stages. So we spoke to investors initially overseas um, in in uh, Abu Dhabi and London and so New are York. They, sorry. Uh, are they sovereign wealth funds? Are they superannuation and Large pension superannuation. funds? Are they family offices? Are uh, they rich friends? Combination of all of those. Really? Um, so firms like Bain Capital, uh, the uh, Singaporean, Singaporean sovereign fund, the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, uh, a business, a division of what was then Credit Suisse Asset Management in New York, uh, Abu Dhabi Development Corporation, Domestically, the Fairfax and Meyer family offices, uh, and then that, that, then that we kind of as as people saw who was investing, uh, others followed. More come in, yeah. But we were very clear from the beginning that this was going to be a one point five billion dollars ask in stages over four years. We we chose that path in in contrast to others. Who would come to the market and say, "I need to raise twenty million, and they would do it from crowdfunding and, and and wealthy individuals, and then they would come back and say, "I need to raise another twenty and then another we said to at the very beginning, this is one point five billion in stages uh and so therefore we we find ourselves speaking to sophisticated and and in the main deep pocketed investors um 
how hard was it to get the first one? Very hard. And who was the first one? Uh, was, so was it Maya? And my my family office was part of the initial funding, but the, but the initial the, the initial seed funding for the company came from the management in the company. So we we sold our assets or mortgaged our homes, and we you know the the first seven or eight million dollars in the company came from the people who were building the company. So just you and David, or uh, the and, other and, and, and a few Chris others and, as and, well. and a few others as well. Yeah, but we wanted to demonstrate serious commitment. Yeah, and have you still got a lot of money in there? Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the company today is valued at about one point four, one point five billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And management and directors own about eight and a half percent of the company. Uh, Ninety percent of the employees in the company are equity holders in the company. Very, very committed to building a bank where people feel like they are owners rather than simply employees in the bank. I mean, startups. You know, a lot of startups fail. And you talk about this in your book that you've published, which we'll talk also a little bit about later, Black Belt, uh, you know, like a, a, a guide for startups and entrepreneurs. Um, a lot fail. Three other neobanks, which were like you, who got a license in 2019, three out of four have failed? Yep, are, are no longer in business. Okay. Yep. Why haven't you failed? Well, um, because of the experience of the management team and because of the rigor that went in to the planning for the business. The measure twice, cut once approach that I had touched on earlier. We, we, we thought this through in some detail. We, and we made sure that it was going to be well resourced. You know, Nine out of 10 startups fail. Those are the statistics. You don't often hear about the nine. You often, you hear about the one, the one. that's failed. But the reality is that nine out of 10 fail. Now, we, and, and, and when, as we were speaking to advisors, particularly overseas, people kept on saying, this is very risky. Joe, David, Chris, you could be doing something else and earning, you know, a couple of million dollars a year inside a big bank, why on earth would you do something like this where the chances of failure are very high and you're going to lose all of your money and uh, a good chance you'll lose your uh, partner because they'll be so disillusioned with the risk that you're taking. There you are in your early, mid-50s, uh, basically putting at risk everything that's been built up over several decades. And then there was one particular meeting in, in uh, London with a gentleman called Joe Giannamori, who was a very experienced private equity investor and, and has turned out to be a very good friend. Uh, he, he had, he had done this before in Europe. And so he was, helped a new startup yeah, bank. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In continent in Poland and, um, actually in London, in uh, London as well. So he said, look, you guys have thought this through, and your your CVs are uh, uh, say that you know exactly what you're doing. So please do not misunderstand me. Please do not be offended with, with what I'm about to say to you. And so, of course, you sat back, straightened your back, and sat back in the chair and said, "What's going to come here?" And he said, "Look, Joe and David, you are no spring chickens." Why on earth would you do this? Because this is going to be a roller coaster ride with a high chance of failure. There's going to be days, weeks, and sometimes months where the walls are closing in on you, where 
the tun the darkness in the tunnel has no light at the end. Uh, this is going to be the hardest thing that you have ever, ever, ever done. Are you sure that you want to do it? So, uh, and only a good friend can say something like that to you. But it was, it was, it was good advice. Make sure that you know what you're doing. Of course, we we thought that through, and and we were very clear on why we were doing it. And we were not doing this to make money. We were doing this because we felt that the Australian economy the small to mid-sized business part of the economy was being really poorly served by the big banks. Yeah. And we felt there was a need to build something that looked just after the needs of the small to mid-sized businesses and did it the way it should be done. Why did those first small to medium enterprises come to you? And how difficult was that to get them to come and borrow money from you? Well, it was, it was remarkably easy, actually. Really? Yeah, because... Well, st- stepping back for a second, actually, because the thing that concerned me, uh, David, the most at the beginning was could we attract the talent? Could we attract the bankers out of the jobs that they had inside the larger institutions to take the personal risk of leaving a 10, 15, and sometimes 20-year career and come and join the startup? That was the big question that that, that was exercising our minds because without those bankers, there was no business, no matter how much money we had, because this whole right. proposition about Judo Bank is that you have a, an experienced banker sitting across the table from the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, understanding their business, and then working out how the bank might be able to help them. And, and this, was, this was core. So could we attract the right kind of people into the company that would help us bring this to life? Because if because we believe passionately that this is a people business, and so that with the right people uh, who are engaging with small businesses, that the small businesses would come to us, and 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 so the key here was was the people, the ability to attract really really high caliber bankers, uh, and I was absolutely blown away by the caliber of people that we were able to attract. What is the business model? I mean, briefly, is it branches and all these great bankers that you hired, you know, drawing in people on the high street? Was it digital? Was it um, great interest rates on deposits? Well, so it's. It, it, I would describe our business model as a, a high-touch, high-tech model. High-touch in that it's a human interface. So there is a human interface? Oh, yes, very much so. I mean, we've got close to 600 staff today. And, add, and growing, we'll add another 70 or 80 in the next 12 months. We're in 18 locations around the country and all of the major business centers around the country. So they're not branches? Not branches. So it's not, not high street. It's a, it, we, we'd occupy a floor. It's like a, a business office. Yeah, in a building in downtown Perth or downtown Melbourne or downtown Sydney or downtown Brisbane. Um, but our bankers are mobile. Our bankers are out speaking to businesses. That's what we want bankers doing. We don't want them sitting in the office. We want them out speaking to the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. Digital, you said. Yeah. So high touch, high touch, high tech. tech. So in order to deliver the service that we believe small to mid-sized businesses deserve, that you had to build a business that was technology enabled. Not mm-hmm. not technology defined, but technology enabled. 
enabled in the sense that then allowed the bankers, the, the humans, the high touch to spend their time w dealing with customers, not spending their time dealing with the complexity of the bureaucracy and the legacy that defines so much in the industry. So uh, we are a human touch bank. Uh, when our customers want to speak to someone, they, they've got the telephone number of at least two bankers that they can speak to. We will give, we'll be, because this is all we do, you know, this is the power of specialization. All we talk about, all we plan about, all we dream about, all we think about is small and mid-sized businesses. Uh, Up to what size? Well, we define an, our target market as businesses with a turnover of up to $100 million per annum. So it's broad. Yeah. Uh, and businesses who will benefit from having the uh, expertise of an experienced banker working with them. Less than a year, I think it was, after you got your banking license, COVID hit. You were still hiring, I, I think, still firing up, building up your business. I mean... How bad was that? Because, you know, for certainly for the first few weeks, maybe the first few months for a lot of businesses in a lot of sectors, they didn't know what the heck was happening. They didn't know whether they were going to go under. They probably didn't know whether they could repay their loans. And how did it affect you? Well, of course, that whole period was a terrible period for everybody uh, across society. But ironically... It arguably was the best thing that ever happened to Juro Bank. Uh, I always been uh, engaged by the idea. I think it was President Obama's chief of staff who once said, "Don't waste a crisis." But the idea that this was a crisis that was hit, that was a hitting society, that banks would pull up the drawbridge and close the shutters that lots of good businesses would be looking for support, looking for someone to speak to. I said to the team, this is where we step forward. This is where we step forward uh, in a very targeted and disciplined manner, but we, are, we should be out in the market supporting good businesses and helping them think through the challenges that were unfolding as the pandemic became more entrenched. So just let me put this, I mean, this is a very sort of um, outrageous example, but you didn't say, oh, we've got to call in all our loans, we've got to make them all repay all their, their loans to us. You didn't panic? Not at all. And this is the benefit of experience, you know, because I, I, I'm like, well, when I think about the seven executives that we have running the bank, we had over 200 years of commercial banking experience. Um, ha had been through the GFC and been through uh, in other markets around the had world. Had you been through the 91 recession? I, uh, I wasn't here then, but, but I saw, I'd been through more than a couple of recessions in yeah. London. They tend to do them more frequently in, in the UK. But, you know, the, the, if we could hold our nerve, if we stay true to the whole purpose upon which we built this company, if we are disciplined and focused, we could come out of this crisis in really good shape. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. How good a shape? Well, we, 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 entered, the, come out we entered the crisis in, in March 2020 with a lending book. We didn't have much, actually. It was certainly less than a billion dollars. 
Um, and we, if you think about the world since 2020, which is only three years ago, mm, mm. we kind of, and the pandemic is still with us, mm. but it's less of an issue today, but it's been replaced by concerns about the economy. Mm. And so I, I, I keep on saying to people that Juro is a child of uncertain economic conditions. We've never enjoyed a period of benign conditions. We've, we were born in the eye of the COVID storm. We've managed, we've worked our way through that as, and, and strengthened ourselves. And we're now in a period of economic uncertainty, which could go well into 2024. But I feel we're fit as an organization to manage and navigate whatever those conditions might look like. And you've now, you, did you reach your goal for financial year 23? So the year that, as at June 20, sorry, June 30th, you had a lending book of? $9 billion. Now, when we, when we took the company public in November 2021, we were conscious then that this was quite a unique business, that, that the market couldn't look for a comparable and say, well, that's what judo looks like. So what we said to the market is in valuing judo, we, we will give you some metrics that we will achieve in the medium term. Yeah. We said we will b build a lending book of between 15 and 20 billion, net interest margin of 3%, cost to income ratio in the 30s. Yeah. This is jargon. Yeah. Uh, a cost of risk of sub 50 basis points and a, and a return on equity in the mid-teens. So we said we will do that in the medium term. We didn't put dates on the medium mm. term, but most people have said that looks like 26, 27. So what we've, what we've said to the market this year is that we are halfway there. We have done what we said we would do. We haven't missed a heartbeat. We're, grow we're running our own race, so we're growing and, and at the pace that we want to grow at, and we're delivering on everything we said we would do, because that's the reputation that we want. We want to have a reputation for doing what we said we would do. In fact, you know, one of the really great things about the company, which fills me with a huge amount of pride, is that when I speak to people that we first spoke to in 2016, and some of them are still our, our, on our shareholder register, they quite often, not, they regularly say to us, you know, what you guys said in 2016 is exactly what you're saying today. Nothing has changed. This is an SME specialist bank uh, run by people that really understand this business that is going to grow a sustainable bank, never the biggest, but with a vision to be the best SME bank in this country by some margin. Uh, and we're on track. And I love that. I love that. I actually love that more than I love the numbers. The numbers are good. But I think, you know, there's something really nice in life about consistency. Some people say it's boring. I think there's nothing more exciting than people doing what they said they would do. Joseph Healy, co-founder with David Hornery of Judo Bank and its CEO. Tell me a bit about your childhood in Scotland. Yeah. Obviously, you've uh, you've kept your accent, but uh, not you've Australianised it a fair bit. What sort of childhood did you have? Did you come from a family of bankers, people in finance? Were you folks business people? No, a uh, very humble background. I mean, my both my parents were born in uh, in Ireland and m migrated to Scotland. 
working class. Uh, father was in, in the construction industry and, and mother was a, a mum. So we had five, I have four other, four siblings. Uh, we had a good family home. Uh, we, we had a, we didn't have a lot, but we had enough. Um, I was the eldest of five. Uh, it was a, it was a very normal, you know, family home, uh, two weeks vacation every year, normally to the West coast of Ireland. Uh, pub, we lived in public housing, um, so I'm sorry, is your accent Irish or Scottish? It's, a, it's Scottish with a yes. hint of Irish in it. But I was born in Edinburgh. Yeah. You were very good at soccer, as I understand it, and you thought you might be a professional soccer player? Yeah. Well, soccer was my passion um, from, oh gosh, from the age of four or five. I mean, I just loved it, soccer, and uh, and was pretty good actually. I, I, I got in the the uh, representative teams and in the Scottish national team. And uh, I, I thought at the age of 15, 14, 15, 16 that, that I was going to have a career as a professional footballer. And I, I did trial with teams um, uh, in England and in Scotland, um, but it wasn't to be. Um, and I kind of realized when I was about 16 uh, that I was good, but I wasn't great. Because I, sta I started to notice, particularly when I got into the national team. The national Scottish the team. The Scottish team, Well yeah, done. The youth team. But, yeah. but you, when you got to that level, um, it brought into sharp contrast your skills versus the skills of some others. And this does, I, I don't want to sound defeatist here. But I realized that there were a lot of really, really good players with, who had much stronger technical skills than I had. And I, 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 I came to realize that actually I'd, I'd probably done as well as I was ever going to do. Now, that sounds defeatist. Um, but I, I, I did realize that I was good, but I wasn't great. And that that, that career as a professional footballer was probably not the best choice. You had a fairly famous coach, didn't you, at one stage, Alex Ferguson? Uh, well, I, I met Alex Ferguson. He he was uh, um, the assistant coach to the senior national team. He was also a full time coach at one of the Scottish teams. At the he wasn't very famous then. No, so he wasn't famous then he wasn't before fam he went to Man U. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't famous then, but he came uh, uh, to watch um, and and speak to the the Scottish youth team. Um, now, you could tell then, you know, sometimes you meet somebody and there's an X factor. Now, he was young then. I mean, he would have been in his late 30s, maybe, maybe 40s. But he had that X factor. Um, and so what do you remember? What struck you? The, class, what the clarity said? of his communication, the clarity of, of go out there and uh, – and play as if it's the last game you're ever going to play. Leave everything on the park. Don't believe you can win, never give in, and work as a team. But it was very clear messages. And he would say things like, I've seen you, I've seen you, I've seen you play, the team play. You're really good. You can beat these people. So, you know, there was a it was a clarity and consistency of messaging. Um, because there was a bunch of young boys at that time. So has that stayed with you? 
Yes, I'm, I'm attracted to people who are really clear about what they want. I'm not attracted to people that use jargon. I'm attracted to people that are very resilient uh, in what they do, that the the never give in attitude um, that characterizes in sport characterizes a number of very successful sports people. It characterizes a number of very successful business people. But I like that strength of self, of knowing who you are and believing in yourself and believing in what you're saying to people as a leader, that you, that the clarity of your thinking and the clarity of your communication and the consistency. And I go back to this theme of consistency. Uh, I, I get very put off by people who are chopping and changing the, the way they do things. Okay. So at 16, you think, mm, maybe I'm not going to become a professional soccer player. Yeah. How did that jump to, you came from a working class family. How did yeah. that jump to finance? Oh, uh, well, I, 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 had a, I had a high school teacher called Mr. Donnelly, who was uh, an economics, had studied economics. Um, he didn't, he wasn't teaching economics in the class, but but he said to me, um, Joe, uh, I want you to uh, buy The Economist every week. This was when I was 15. The magazine, The, magazine, the Economist. The weekly, the weekly. When you were 15. Yeah. I said, I want you to, because you could tell I had an interest, not just in, in economics, but in finance and business. And incidentally, so I bought the, I still have every copy of The Economist since then. You don't. I do. <laughs> I do. You must have a room full of them. <laughs> I do. I, I love The Economist and it's the highlight of my week. You know, when I get, I get the digital version, then I get the printed version sent, mailed to me. Wow. Um, it's the source, not the source of truth, but it's a source of contempt, current knowledge about what's happening mm. around the world in business and finance and politics and geopolitics. Uh, if, so for me, that it was that advice from Mr. Donnelly, um, Joe, I want you to get the economist, um, that got, the, that was the beginning of my real interest in economics that, and then into banking, because I, one of the things about banking then and now is it's, if it, it, it is one of those professions that ha, allows you to have a helicopter view of what is happening mm. across the economy across industries and across society, domestically and globally. It's an international language that people understand. Um, and So did you go to university yeah, with, yeah. This, with finance or economics in mind? Yeah. Well, I, I, yes, I did. So I, I went to, uh, well, I've actually got six, I've got six master's degrees. Six master's six degrees. degrees. Yeah. So you're a lover of lifelong learning. I, I love lover of lifelong learning, but but in finance and economics, I was particularly interested in, in that. And uh, I went to London, uh, King's College London, the London Business School, the, the School of Oriental and African Studies, and uh, you know, and, and immersed myself over, I mean, over year, not yes. all, over the years. And and most recently, I did a, a uh, an M, a Master of Science degree in in neuroscience and uh, psychology. And so I've always been a passionate learner. Um, I like subjects that I'm really interested in. 
I like to really understand them. Uh, I like to understand the history, like China, for example. I like to understand the history. In finance, I like to understand, uh, you know, making sure you have a good understanding of the theory of finance and the theory of economics, because then you can kind of bench, you can compare what you see against what the theory says you should see. And so, um, I, so that learning. So that helps in the bank? Enormously. All these master's degrees? Enormously. Well, it, I mean, it helps me as an individual yeah. to be a much more rounded individual. Uh, when I'm when I'm talking about China, I have two master's degrees in Chinese studies. I can talk in detail about China since 1850. I can talk in detail about the, how the Communist Party works from the top to the grassroots. How China, uh, the Chinese history and international affairs, Chinese culture. Uh, unfortunately, I can't speak the language. But uh, but neuroscience and psychology is invaluable. I mean, I, I wish now that I studied that right back at the beginning because understanding how people are thinking and, and sometimes not thinking, how think how uh, mental what health can thing. impact people, how to communicate your stories and your information in a way that gels with people, how to de treat people in certain ways. A, a whole how range of things. How they make decisions. How they make decisions, and and you know, you know, just because how prevalent mental health issues are, and particularly in industries or in, in activities that are quite stressful or quite high pressured, um, being alert to the problems that people can face and helping cope them cope with them, and and running the company in a way that is very sensitive to these issues. Briefly, how did you get to Australia then? Uh, I came to Australia about 19 years ago. You'd been working in banking yeah, in London? Yeah, I, I, I came to Australia and joined ANZ Bank. Um, I'd worked quite closely in London with uh, John McFarlane, mm -hmm. who, was the, who then was the CEO of ANZ Bank. So I, uh, coincidentally, I joined the ANZ Bank. Uh, John, for me, has been a role model. Uh, I mean, he's the chair t chairman today of Westpac. Um, but I, I, I was very influenced as a young banker in London at Citibank, uh, where John was running a division of the bank, and I worked closely with him actually there. I learned a lot from him. L like what? Oh, that I, you brought I with you oh, I, I think there was the resilience, the independent thinking that Again, back yourself, you know, form your own view. Listen to people, but form your own view. Think strategically about what what do we want this to look like in three, five years' time? Because it, the, it, the decisions that you make today should be very much with that future state in mind. So thinking strategically um, and, and thinking broadly about things. And so, I, you know, he... he from, to my mind, has been one of the outstanding bankers of the 20th century, 21st century. You did have a stellar, but then perhaps a rocky trajectory in banking, if I may be so bold. I mean, you got close to the top of the tree at NAB Bank, National Australia Bank, running the business bank. You told the Financial Review or the Financial Review reported that you wanted the CEO job at NAB and you were pretty bitterly disappointed to miss out to Andrew Thorburn in 2014. Is that right? Yep, that's fair. That's fair. Yep. But didn't you dodge a bullet there? I mean, 
Andrew Thorburn <laughs> certainly had, you know, four years before he came under the Hain blowtorch, but the Royal Commission, I mean, he was sort of harshly came unstuck at the hands of the Royal Commission. Yeah. So dodge the bullet. I, 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 or do you look on that in a different way, that I you would have steered the bank and taken all those dreadful behaviours away? I, I, I probably would not. Well, not probably. Sorry, I shouldn't even say that I'm not inferring that he was no. responsible for all those no, I think the criticism. Behaviors. I think the criticism for the Royal Commission had a lot to do with the style and the kind of a sense of dismissiveness and flippant attitude towards quite serious issues. I certainly would have dealt with that very differently. Um, but you know, I, I don't. It's always easy with hindsight. Um, that that outcome, of course, was the best thing that ever happened to me. The fact that I didn't get that job, really. Well, because because it was a big motivation to go and build an, a, a bank um, that has fulfilled all of the career aspirations that I ever had. Okay, just jumping again, are you worried that you guys are such a small minnow? I think you said you're capitalised at one and a half billion. NAB is capitalised at the moment at what eighty four or eighty five billion, with very large fish in the pond with you. They could crush you in the SME sector if they wanted to. Are you oh, worried about that? No, not at all. Not at all. I, I don't believe they could crush. Uh, Judo is now a well-established and profitable business. Um, we have a very strong points of difference. Uh, I, I think our size is a strength, not a weakness. Um, you know, when you get big, you become slow moving, you become very bureaucratic, you become inward looking. Um, that's not our culture. And maybe silos. And this very is how silos, silos and, develop. But whereas we are an agile company that think that where the people running the company think like owners in the company, where there's a strong passion. We're not employee number 34,022. We built this ourselves. We we want to make sure that there's a this has a is a fantastic legacy. We don't want we want judo to be talked about around the world as if you want to build a bank. Look at judo. I, I I get this all the time, by the way. Obviously, I get not every month, but seven or eight times a year, I get a text message or a call or a request to speak to someone in Brazil or Denmark or Germany or uh, Taiwan, who they're thinking of. They've heard about judo and they're thinking about doing something like judo, and that through their networks of maybe the investment banks, they'll you know they'll come to me and say, "Look, we'd love you to." Come speak to our people. Tell us what you did, how you did it, what lessons you learned, what mistakes you made, uh, and and I'm, we make the time to do that. You know, was there one step or one decision that you took that really catapulted Judo Bank? I mean, was it going public? Was it getting that first investor way back? Getting the the investors. I mean, I I mentioned that. We were delighted with the quality of investors that we attracted into the company. But we had 86 meetings four times around the world before we got our first dollar from a, from a third party. 86 so, meetings so this before was, you got one dollar yeah, of investment this was, money. This goes back to resilience. We went around and around the world. People said, we love the story. Come back when you made some money. We love the story, but we don't think you can do it. We love the story. Come back when you make a profit. Um, and so, you know, that was an exhausting process. So 
I think the big lesson, which you can only really learn through experience, is I would have taken a different approach to the investor market, given the experience that we've now got, and perhaps try to cut that eighty-six meetings down dramatically. Yeah, because <laughs> it could be quite it could be quite disheartening when you've had all sure. with no money to show for yeah. it. Yeah, just can we have your view? And I, I don't want to date this too much, but um, given that we are in a higher interest rate environment, and even though there's been a bit of a pause in mid twenty twenty three, interest rates could be going up higher. What's your view? Are we heading for recession in Australia? Uh, well, I, uh, yes and yes. I, I, I do think that interest rates have to go higher. I know that's not a popular view, but we, we have to deal with inflation. Uh, and I know that it's been a long time since we've had inflationary pressures in the economy, but what, what we don't want to do is have an economy that has sticky inflation um, because that, that erodes uh, everybody's savings, er erodes all the stuff that people work for, do you think people understand that enough no, when they rail against the Reserve Bank governor? Or well, I, mean, I think yes, that, it's really tough paying a, you know a, a bigger mortgage yeah, repayment, it, but rampant inflation is a disaster, a shocker. It's, we don't want that. So, I, so I think in order to avoid that, the, the interest rates have to go higher, despite the pain that that will inflict. But it's it's short term pain for long-term gain, if we don't address it and we we lock in inflation, then that is going to be a lot more damaging than having to cope with higher interest rates for, say, a, a period of up to a year. I, I'm not dismissing how difficult it is for, for lots of families that have mortgages that they, they took out at 2% and, and are now seeing those mortgages being repriced at 6 or 7%. At a time when, when energy bills are going through the roof, when household groceries are going through the roof, when it's hard um, for so many people to manage. So, but you said yes to, you uh, think because, there's because a recession I, coming. I, 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 it's hard to see how we can avoid uh, a recession. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I don't get caught up in the technical definition of a recession. What I can well imagine that Australia uh, has zero or low growth and, and perhaps doesn't quite have a technical right, recession right. as defined by two periods, two quarters. Yeah. But that doesn't mean there aren't recessionary pressures in the economy. And you, and we, you could get this two speed economy where, where, where let's say the resource and export sectors are doing really well. Mm. But the, the sectors that rely on you and I spending our discretionary dollar. So construction, retail, Re hospitality. Uh, gyms, hospitality. Now, there is already lots of evidence that that's happening. There's lots of evidence that people are starting to tighten their household budget. So let, I, I, I would dismiss the emphasis on recession, and I would say that we are going to go through a very difficult period in this economy where certain segments of the economy, including the household sector, are going to struggle. And will that include unemployment? We, we'll have to see, worse. yeah, because as, as businesses see costs going up, they're going to have to start adjusting uh, some costs that they can control. Okay, so will you see more bad and doubtful debts? We'll see more bad and doubtful debts across the economy. and In, uh, in your bank? Uh, yeah, we'll see some. Yeah, but I, I'm, we've made assumptions about what those will look like, and I'm quite confident that we will be within those assumptions. 
but we're going. But I'm definitely of the view that this is going to be a very difficult twelve months heading into twenty twenty four. So, do you have a constant eye on costs on your own costs? Yes, we we do we want to continue to invest in the company because I don't want to build this company or make decisions about this company that are all about the short term. You've got to say that. The, the prospects of the Australian economy in the medium long term are strong. Mm. You know, I mean, we we might complain about conditions domestically, but you could not wish to be in a better place than Australia in a world that's facing these challenges universally. You sound like a politician saying oh, that. I, <laughs> Best country in the world. Oh, Wouldn't look, want to be anywhere I, else. I... I, I I, I read widely on what's happening around the world, particularly in in the United States and the United Kingdom, continental Europe, all economies that are dealing with challenges. Mm. We are so well, well placed to deal with our challenges, but the, but the key for me is that we've got to deal with the challenges. We can't stick our head in the sand and say, let's keep the cash rate at 4.1 and let's not put interest, up, interest rates up anymore because it's hurting. It was supposed to hurt, unfortunately. It's, it's supposed to hurt, but it's better to take your pain early than take it later when it get, the problem can get a lot worse. Back to you being an entrepreneur and starting Judo Bank. In your book, Black Belt, a masterclass for startups, you talk of the importance of keeping the, fine, the founder mindset. Why is that so important? Oh, I just think for the culture of the organization that you want people to think like owners. You want people to be passionate about the vision for the company. You don't want them thinking like employees. I mean, we are employees, but you don't want people thinking like employees. And the reason and all the hard work that w was invested in getting the company to where it's at today should continue into the future. You know, we're still so much runway in front. And the power of a founder or ownership mindset is is just absolutely such a strength of the com company. You know, that people say, when I say, when I'm hiring or speaking to somebody about joining Judo, I say, look, if you want to work in a world-class bank, which Judo will become, you can come back in three or four years' time and we'll see if we've got a job for you. If you want to help build a world-class bank, join today. Help us build something. So you're very good at the positive story. <laughs> well, because I'm A, I'm excited by it, and B, I believe strongly in it. That And, and I, I see a great future for the bank, as I say, a great future for the Australian economy. Uh, not to, as I keep on saying, not to be the biggest, but to be the best. Yeah. There is another point in your book that I thought was really interesting because often you don't hear this loudly enough from entrepreneurs and founders. And that is, you say, avoid drinking too much of your own Kool Aid. That's tricky, isn't it? Because you've got to keep the confidence level up, you've got to be the chief spruker for the bank, um, for the project, for the idea. But you're also saying you've got to be ruthless in your self-assessment and where you're going and how you're going and things like risk. Well, you have to be very disciplined on risk. I, I think we're lucky in, in that the people that set the bank up and run the bank are, are 
uh, are, are what I would call humble individuals. We're not driven by egos. We're not, you know, we're, we're, we're focused on what we're building. We get, we get um, lots of plaudits from people saying, wow, what, what, look what you've done. And we, look, we think about it for a short time. We think, well, we've got so much more to do. Uh, people, you kind of look at the sand you've got to shift and you don't spend much time looking at the sand that you have actually shifted. So I think the humility has been a strength of the company and that we, as soon as you start believing in your own spin, it's the beginning of the end, right? And people also want to deal with authentic individuals that we've done a lot. We've got a lot to do. We've made some great decisions and we've made some dumb decisions. Um, but be honest and don't get caught up in a sense of achievement because as soon as you start thinking you've succeeded, you start to fail. Can you tell us one dumb decision? I think we made dumb decisions on technology at the beginning. Okay, wrong t wrong technology partners, or too wrong, expensive. Wrong technology partners. Okay. Uh, yeah, big mistake. I wanted to just ask you a couple of questions that I ask all my guests. What are you obsessed about at the moment? Be it a book, a place, an idea? The cult culture inside the organization, the culture. Because at the end of the day, the success of the of Judo will be driven by its culture. It's what makes Judo different and it's what make, it's going to, what make, will make Judo successful. It's not the financial resources. It's not the best products. It's going to be the culture, the way that people work together, think about the customer, avoid bureaucracy, mindless bureaucracy, avoid silos, avoid politics, are honest. Uh, now, you can't take that for granted because, and, and the risk is as you grow, that culture starts to fade. What made you special when you were young can fade and get worn out over time. So my, my biggest fear is waking up, looking in the mirror and seeing a mini me of the big banks. I hate that. And the only way I can avoid that is through the culture of the organization. And today I would say, I keep on saying to our, my colleagues that the cultural concrete inside Juro is still wet. We've maybe got two years maximum before it hardens. And inside big organizations, big banks and big companies, the cultural concrete is rock solid hard and you can't change it. You can't change it. You can have all changes in CEOs and all big internal programs, but the culture is rock solid and nothing grows and nothing moves. So we've got another two years maximum where the, con the concrete is wet and we can mold it. And so I don't want to waste that. It's a long answer to an important question, actually. But the culture is the key to the success of the organization. What's the toughest thing you've learned since you became an entrepreneurial person in the business journey? The toughest thing is that you, the, the buck stops with you. Uh, you know, you don't, you're not sitting inside a 40,000 organization with 20 committees and and 50 people you've got to speak to to get a decision made. Uh, you, you, the, the re harsh reality is that you are accountable for the important decisions in the company. You're accountable for the people that work in the company, 
for the shadow that the leadership sets in the company. When things go wrong, um, then people will want to hold you accountable for that. So I think it's that realization that I'm no longer living in a nice warm bath as you are inside big companies. When the temperature gets cold, you just turn the hot tap on. In, inside a bank like Judo, uh, it's a small bank, growing bank, uh, there's nowhere to hide. I can't start pointing fingers at people, you know. They'll point them back at They'll you. point them back at me, as they should. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in this startup journey? All about people. All about people. It's, it's, the, it's the people that you attract into the company, the people that you're working with day in and day out. It's great people that make you look good. What would you say to either other younger entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs about, I've got a great idea, you know, what should I do? I, I, well, first of all, pursue it. Uh, but but what, I, what I would counsel is take the time to think it through. Take the time to make sure that you've got all of your ducks lined up, that you've understood the risks, that you're not doing it on your own, uh, build a team around you, people who are equally passionate, who compliment you. Uh, there's an old saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So if you want to go fast, get off and do it. But the chances are you could, you could fail. Whereas with the right kind of people working with you who share the vision and the passion, who have complementary skills that can act as a bit of a counter to your highs and your lows, um, build it as a team because you're going to build something bigger as a team uh, than you try to do it on your own. And think about we, not about I. Joseph Healy, it's been a great pleasure interviewing you, having you as a guest on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.